Get ready for the ultimate wrestling fan experience from the comfort of your own home. StarCast 6 is streaming exclusively on Premier Streaming Network. Witness wrestling legends and current AEW stars take the stage for three days of engaging and captivating discussions, including AEW Unrestricted Live with special guest Tony Khan. But wait, there's more. Order the full weekend bundle and score two months of Premier Plus absolutely free. Unlock access to over 70 epic shows from StarCast 1 through 5 as well as the upcoming wrestling showcase event on September 9th. Plus, you get access to the Premier Plus library with thousands of hours featuring your favorite promotions and stars. All of this for just $49.99. Don't let this opportunity slip away. Tune in to StarCast 6 exclusively on Premier Streaming Network and order now at StarCastOnPremier.com. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson and you're listening to Foley is pod. And of course we couldn't do it without the hall of famer, the hardcore legend himself, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Mick Foley, Mick, how are you, man? Oh man, Conrad's been a, a really tough couple days, uh, not just for me, but for everyone I think who loves, uh, wrestling. And so we're going to pay tribute to a couple of people that we, uh, lost, um, and somehow try to, you know, make it, make it happy somehow try to bring up some great memories. Uh, but it's, it's been a tough, been a tough couple of days. Man, as you and I were recording this last night, it just, uh, it washed over me and I tweeted out, boy, this week really sucked. And, uh, as a wrestling fan, it's just been tough. You know, the, the news, none of us ever wanted to hear, but we knew, you know, I guess eventually is inevitable. We lost the late, great Terry Funk. And man, you and I hold him in such high regard and and we both think maybe he hasn't gotten his proper flowers because so much of his career wasn't really televised and it wasn't really saved. And, and, and back in the territory days, they just recorded over that stuff. And he had a hall of fame career before anybody, uh, you know, before ECW even existed. And and then he really just reinvented himself probably with flair in 89 and then Again, you know, in the early nineties with ECW and then that great run he had with you in the late nineties and the WWF. And uh, it's just a, a real shame that maybe, um, we didn't get to all tell him even more how important he was, because as I was explaining to one of my non-wrestling friends the other day, Terry Funk was your favorite wrestler's favorite wrestler. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's. That's a good way to put it. And uh, we talked before on the show about he was not just on my Mount Rushmore of wrestling, but he was like the center of it. And we gave all the reasons why. And I think the reasons I gave were like longevity of career, the quality of matches, ability to reinvent himself, uh, willingness to have great matches, or at least the attempt to have great matches with anyone of any style. And that he he really he really paid things back. He he wanted he embraced the changes going on uh, that, that in a way that a lot of people of his uh, era did not. And he made stars willingly. And so 
Uh, and then the, the big thing to me, maybe as big as any of those other attributes, is Conrad, he made it so easy to believe. Yes. <laughs> the suspension of disbelief was almost, it, you didn't have to suspend disbelief because you believed, you know. He, he made it so easy to believe to the point where not only the fans went home thinking, that might have been real, but his opponents went back to the dressing room thinking, hey, that might have been real, you know. Uh, you, you definitely were in for a, you were in for a, a, a battle. Uh, so there are those, you know, where they said, oh, night off, oh, night off. It's like it wasn't a night off because you had to, you had to work hard. You had to work really hard. He, and you wanted to. You would feel, I think you'd feel embarrassed if you didn't give your best to Terry Funk. And uh, when you did, he brought out things in you that you did not know you had. I've often heard, you know, guys say in wrestling that, they have multiple styles of matches, you know, that, you know, I'm going to pull out all the stops on a pay-per-view, but, oh, tonight they're going to get the house show match, that sort of thing. Yeah. But I've heard other people say, oh no, if you paid a ticket to see me, I'm going all in. It feels like Terry Funk was one of those guys all the way to his core, right? Yeah, he certainly was. And he's probably the best example. I, I think I wrote in Terry's, um, memoir i was given the privilege of writing his uh forward and i said that he, he always had it and i said the only two guys wrestlers that i ever saw who seemed to be in the zone every time they went down to the ring was terry and rick flair like i there were times when i was in that zone and i was like i know i'm the best i could be but i never saw terry when he wasn't there and that's whether he was, you know, headlining a WCW pay-per-view or, you know, wrestling in front of 40,000 uh, in the first ever electrified barbed wire match against Onita in Japan or doing the biggest match uh, of my career up until that point was just 150 people right. in a near frozen little gymnasium that was a prefecture outside of Tokyo in January 1995. So he always brought it. Always, uh, I, I never see the, and the one time he told me in ECW after showing me his MRI that, you know, brought tears to my eyes because I knew my back wasn't great, but his was far worse than mine. I didn't even see how he was walking. And he said he might not be able to do much. And that's what I thought when I went out there. <laughs> that didn't turn out to be the case. So he, he might be in extreme pain, and he often was before the match and after the match. But when he walked in down that aisle, I mean, you know, the, the show starts as you walk through that door. He gave people everything he had, and when he uh, physically couldn't do it, he committed mentally with some of the, like, the fiercest, most believable promos, even if they were just on uh, independent shows. What an icon, what a legend and what a man, you know, I know a lot of people are reliving some of their favorite moments as far as, you know, matches and promos. And I want to talk about all that, but I really appreciated what you said about how he tried to pay it forward. And there's two ways, I guess you see old timers approach this guys who adapt and guys who sort of stomp their foot and say, oh, it used to be better. And back in my day and that sort of thing. 
but it felt yeah. like he was really the first guy in a big way to embrace this new style, whether it meant, you know, the style he worked with flair, which would have been criticized, you know, a generation before. And yeah. then obviously a generation, the generation after that with ECW and the, and the crazy brawling and all that, he just, he just rolled with the punches and it felt like he was, he was maybe the epitome of an unselfish wrestler. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I think you're right. The, the epitome of the unselfish wrestler, because, uh, Paul, he brought, I don't know this for a fact, but I mean, it just, uh, you, you look at the results and it just, I feel like Paulie brought him in specifically to build the company around him with the understanding and Terry's blessing to it that he was going to try to make some stars. So uh, yesterday, or, or maybe it was two days ago, I was talking on, uh, it was yesterday, busted open and uh, Tommy Dreamer was telling a story about a six man that went awry. And it was just like, <laughs> at that time, a matter of throwing as many guys in there, throwing, you know, that's literally putting the guys in the ring, but figuratively throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall and seeing what stuck. It was Terry and Road Warrior uh, Hawk and Jim Neidhart and three other, you know, uh, well-known names, none of whom would stay in ECW very long. And I said, that's at a time when ECW was trying to figure out what it was going to be. Right. And for a while there, you know, in the early incarnation, they were, it was, it was like a lot of other independent promotions. You try to bring in some, bring in some big names. Uh, but the difference is not everybody, not every big name is going to see the company like Terry Funk saw it. They're not going to, they're not going to go out of there. I mean, they're going to work hard. Hopefully they're going to get people their money's worth. But Terry felt that being part of a company like that meant raising the profiles of people around him. And without that, uh, ECW may have existed for a while, but it's a very different ECW. And it's not, uh, it's not an ECW that I think any of us would be remembering fondly because Terry made it a point to uh, raise those profiles and that type of uh, commitment becomes infectious. So uh, ECW, it was wild. You know, I, I wasn't aware of the partaking of drugs for some of the guys, but we all rooted for each other. Like we all felt like we were part of something special. And I think uh, that came from, uh, if you know, came specifically from Terry and obviously, you know, the vision of, uh, Paul Heyman, you know, what's interesting too, is, you know, when the whole ECW thing went down, it's probably not as if Terry needed the payday. I mean, ECW, while it was a great creative outlet that served as a launching pad for what would go on to be a lot of great stars, like, like yourself and stone cold. I mean, you guys, big money days were in front of you at that point. Terry's big money days were probably in his rear view. He was doing it for the love of the game and truly to pay it forward. I mean, truly to help launch these other guys. And a lot of times I understand that, you know, you, Hey, this is a stepping stone to get me somewhere else for Terry Funk. It was really about other people having a chance to go do something else. Not himself. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And I can tell you as a guy who spent about, sorry, that, uh, 30, 45 minutes trying to book a flight to Amarillo it's not easy. No. <laughs> it's lengthy. So the Amarillo, just to Amarillo to 
Philadelphia, probably Amarillo to Dallas to Philadelphia. It's a, that's a 10 hour travel day. By the time you leave here, he left his house in Canyon to the time uh, he got to his hotel uh, in Philadelphia. That's a 10 hour travel day. And you've got to do two of those. Uh, say there's two, two day, two shows, two days work, two days work, two days of travel. That's a big commitment. Yes. And it's difficult, especially at, at that age, you know, the, it, with the shape his body was in, it was a heck of a commitment, but it's one, uh, he felt strongly about doing. And I think that's, what's fascinating because I think, you know, as a businessman, you, you take a look and you say, Hey, is this really worth it? Uh, is this, you know, not just the, the physical wear and tear, but the financial gain and respectfully, yeah. I don't think anybody was getting rich in ECW and it's not as if he had to have it at that point in his career, it was the love of the game and, and his love of, of trying to push it forward. And man, I, I'm sure you learned a million different things from him, but one of the things I always enjoyed the most was Terry's approach to promos. It felt like he had a different approach to almost everyone else in the business. What was it that made a Terry Funk promo so special? <laughs> well, uh, a, he believed in every word he was saying, uh, he wasn't afraid to hurt feelings. Uh, he called it borderlining and I'll tell you, there were some times when it, it did hurt, but that's an indication that it's going to affect the cr the crowd as well. And then it kind of brings out the best in his verbal sparring partner. And I think if you showed footage, uh, not just of the matches that Terry and I had together, but uh, against each other, um, but also the promos that surrounded them, if you showed them to a lay person, they would think these two human beings hated each other. And in truth, you know, Terry was one of my, uh, he was one of my closest friends, you know, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm glad you had a chance to read the piece that I wrote, yes. uh, last night. Um, I was just, I was trying to do justice to Terry in a way that, uh, 300, um, space social media post can't, um, and you know that it's the picture and the small, you know, the, you know, the 30 to 40 words that people are most interested in reading. But I wanted to do something that people could look back on and that would, and they would feel like I did justice to the subject. And so, uh, yeah, I, I dove in pretty deep and, uh, why don't we read it, Mick? Do you uh, want to read yeah. it? Let's, let's just share yeah, it with our audience. Yeah, I mean, you put your heart and soul into it. Let's throw those spectacles on and Silva's got some graphics that can help us accompany, but uh, right. I know you Let's poured your heart out. Let's share it with everybody about, all right. I called it forever funk. And, uh, when it went up on Facebook, I saw it after 12 minutes, it was doing really well. Um, but it, the first three paragraphs were not included or was a title. So we had to start over. And it's still getting a nice response, but I, you know, I know there's people out there who haven't heard it and, uh, and I think they'll like it. So it says forever funk. It's been a little over 24 hours since Terry Funk's daughters shared with me the news that their legendary father had passed away. When his daughter Brandy's caller ID came up on my phone, I had this immediate feeling that Terry had suffered a bad fall or something of that nature. Up until a few months ago, I don't think I ever conceived the world without Terry Funk in it. 
He began his professional wrestling career in 1965, the same year that I was born, and he just seemed like someone who was always going to be here, someone who was somehow tougher than death, death itself. Even though I'd been fearing the worst for several weeks, the news still came as a shock. His daughters gave me permission to mention this terrible loss to the world, and I guess my post became the way that many of you found out about Terry's passing. In the last couple hours, I kept coming back to a great George Jones song, 1985's Who's Gonna Fill Their Shoes, lamenting the loss, either past or future, of some of country music's most iconic stars. Over and over, I heard it in my head. Why, I wondered, was I stuck on a song from almost 40 years ago, one I have heard only a few times in the past handful of years. Then it hit me. I was thinking about Terry Funk. So when it comes to Terry, I will paraphrase George's song just a tiny bit and ask the question, Lord, I wonder who's going to fill his shoes. Little did I know that the very first time I watched a Terry Funk match, back in 1986 on a VHS tape against Bruiser Brody in Tokyo, that this wild man with the best wrestling punch ever would go on to play such a large role in my life. In time, he would become my idol, my mentor, and one of the very best friends I've ever known. My friend Brian Hildebrand, later known in Smoky Mountain and WCW as Mark Curtis, gave me the tape in the hope that it might improve my punches in the ring. But it did more than that for me. Far more. That Funk-Brody match was the epitome of the brawling style I enjoyed the most, and though I knew I could never have the presence of a Funk or a Brody, in time, through inspiration, borrowing, and outright thievery, I became a pretty darn good Terry Funk ripoff. Jake Roberts once told me that a wise man knows where to steal his material. For wrestlers old and new, you can do a whole lot worse than borrowing a thing or two from Terry Funk. He was the greatest wrestler I have ever seen, and I've seen a lot of them. He is the foundation for my Mount Rushmore of wrestling. It wasn't just the quality of his matches that earned him this accolade, but also his ability to reinvent himself as the years went by, to change styles, have good matches with just about anybody in any style, and to raise the profiles of those he shared the ring with. There were times he was in so much pain before matches that he could barely move, but he would find a way to steal shows through, fear shores, through sheer force of will. In a business with its fair share of takers, Terry Funk was a giver, setting an example of unselfishness and professionalism for everyone who crossed his path. It was an example I tried my best to pay forward. My wife was almost too upset to talk when I gave her the news yesterday. Later in the day, she sent me a video, tears running down her cheeks, telling me how sorry she was because she knew how much Terry meant to me. A few hours ago, she sent me a text message reminiscing about the many hours I spent each day in our first apartment in 1990 with my, screens, with my eyes glued on our 13-inch TV screen, taking in those old Funk and Brody matches from Japan, in addition to just about every classic All Japan match and a fair amount of New Japan of that era. I met Terry in November 1989, just a few weeks after his I Quit match with Ric Flair still my favorite match of all time. I had been completely enamored of Terry's heel run in WCW in 1989, and to this day I've never seen an individual just take over a TV show 
and seemingly make it his own in such a short time. I was amazed to see the psychological transformation he underwent from his all-Japan days, where he was a blood-and-guts, brawling babyface, winning over a stoic culture like that of 1980s Japan by wearing his heart on his sleeve. Ignoring all the societal conventions of the day, both in Japan and in pro wrestling, by weeping openly, by digging deeper into his own well of emotions than any wrestler had ever seen. Thousands of fans quote one of his most iconic All Japan promos, a promo that consisted of one single word, repeated several times, each time with increasing intensity. Barry Blaustein, who became close with Terry during the filming of 1999's Beyond the Mat, told me Eddie Murphy, one of the biggest stars in the world, would walk around movie sets just randomly quoting the promo, yelling that one word, forever, over and over. But the Terry Funk I saw take over WCW in 1989 was not the Terry Funk from All Japan from just a few years earlier. He didn't wear his heart on his sleeve in WCW. He was heartless, remorseless, so believable in his on-screen hatred for Ric Flair that I, along with many of his colleagues, wondered what was and wasn't real. My deep dives into his Memphis feud with Jerry Lawler and his Florida feuds with Dusty Rhodes only deepened my belief that he was both the best babyface and best heel I'd ever seen. To see him throwing those big left hands at Lawler, squealing out the word pig with every punch he threw, then turning wild-eyed toward the Memphis crowd, sent a, set a bar for heel work so high that I've never seen anyone quite reach it. I tried and failed many times, even with my funk-inspired, borrowed, and outright stolen bag of tricks. I encourage all of you to delve into the funk of over the next few years, weeks. It's much easier now than it was in 1990, when I would wait weeks to receive a fifth-generation VHS tape and hope to catch as much action as I could amidst the squiggling, waving lines. Just go on YouTube. Type in Terry Funk and prepare yourself to go down a magical rabbit hole. Watch the matches, experience the feuds, listen to the promos. It's an experience you will recall for quite a while, maybe forever. I wish I'd done a better job keeping in touch with Terry these past couple years. I visited any time my travels took me within a few hundred miles of Amarillo and later Phoenix. He called me last summer when I was in my final hour at the C2E2 convention in Chicago, just a few hours before my flight to Australia. Terry, I'll call you as soon as I get to the airport, I said. An hour later, I walked through airport security and realized I'd left my phone behind in the car service. When I finally got my phone back a month later, Terry's speech pattern was noticeably slower, more forgetful. My calls became fewer and farther between. I realized that in looking at Terry, I was quite possibly looking at my future self. The last time I saw him in January 2023, he was no longer using a walker, but was instead confined to a wheelchair. His daughter, Stacy, told me he had good days and bad days. I'm so glad I caught him on a good wet day when smiles and laughs were plentiful, and he was surrounded by family and a few close friends. The photo posted here is from that day, the final photo we'd ever take together. At the end of June, I saw photos from Terry's birthday party. I pulled over and wept in my car. The toughest man I'd ever met was now so frail and weak. About that time, Terry lost the ability to use his phone. 
So I told his daughter, Stacy, to start checking the mail because I was going to write her dad a letter. A few days later, I sat down by a river with my writing tablet and thanked Terry for everything he'd done for me, how profound his impact on my life had been. I told him that I loved him. Yesterday, when Terry's daughter, Brandy, broke the news of his passing, she told me her dad had received my letter and that it made him cry. I'll be eternally grateful for that time I spent by the river, writing that letter, knowing that I brought this amazing man some joy in his final days. So, who's going to fill his shoes? My guess is that no one ever will. Terry Funk was one of a kind. Wow. Um, it's one thing to read it. It's another thing to hear it in your voice. Um, Thanks. The level uh, of respect you have for him just poured through with your words there. You know, so I've, I've written a lot about Terry, you know, and the books and, and the forward I wrote to his book was something I was really proud of. And I thought at first, you know, not many people have seen that forward. Why don't I just lift that? And that will be my, um, post. I thought, man, you know, just uh, sometimes I write instead of doing a video because I want people to feel the work. I, I felt the same way when I uh, wrote a piece about Lex Luger a couple of years ago, I thought, okay, more people will see it. If I post a two minute video, uh, re-examining the career of Lex Luger, but it's like, I want people to feel the work that went into it. And, uh, you know, the, the tributes that are coming in for both Terry and Wyndham Rotunda are, 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 are awesome. But I think there's a handful of people that we should count on to do something more. And especially in Terry's life and his career, I feel like I'm one of those people. So I'm really glad you liked it. And I hope uh, a lot of people out there get a chance to had a chance to listen and or to read it on, on um, Facebook or my website. Well, here's a spoiler for you, Mick. Everybody liked it um, uh, when it's real and it's honest and it's from the heart. It's unbeatable and just, you, you know, your respect and appreciation and an admiration and love for Terry just poured through. So thank you for spending the time on that. We, we put, we should continue to just talk about his legacy and, and, and how important he was to wrestling here today and just try to talk about some happier times. I mean, it's hard to even imagine. I mean, this is a gentleman who just passed away in 2023 and when he was quote unquote, middle-aged and crazy and, and, and helping a, uh, ECW get on pay-per-view in 1997 with moonsaults and barbed wire and everything in between, he actually first started wrestling back in 1965. That's hard to even imagine. Isn't it? I know the year that I was born. So I look back at some of the crazy things we did together. It was like, was I, you know, like people like, well, you were crazy. It was like, uh, well, I was a guy with a mortgage, you know, two small children. I, I guess you have to, you have to, you have to commit, right? It's like Mr. Miyagi says, in, if you stand on one side of the road, this is in, <laughs> pertains to deathmatch wrestling, but also life in general. I think you stand on one side of the road, you're fine. You stand on the other, you're fine. You stand in the middle, you get squashed like a grape. So when it comes to that, the wild type of wrestling, like, you either do it or you don't do it. 
And no one thinks less of anyone who doesn't do it. But if you're just standing in the middle, uh, being non-committal about it, you'll get squashed like a grape. And so the best way to, to do those matches was while still having respect for your opponent's body was to get into that zone. And there were matches like the one we had January 10th, 1995, where you look back and I think, wow, what was I doing? In front of that small crowd, now I know we were trying to create a, a moment that would put the promotion on the map because we saw the, the media contingent out there. That's a really powerful force in uh, Japanese wrestling. But I still look at it and I go, oh, man, I think I was crazy. And then I think, but Terry was 20 years older than me. <laughs> and he was, if anything, he was the guy that needed toning down, <laughs> not me. Yeah, so everything I did, you know, the, the stuff that I'm known for doing, he was doing as well and doing it 20 years my senior. It's crazy to think. I mean, when, when Terry started wrestling, Lyndon B. Johnson was the president. We hadn't yet landed on the moon. Most people didn't have color TV. I mean, that's where we were when he first starts wrestling. And if you're watching over on YouTube, you see Terry there with a bandana and the NWA world title. He won it 10 years after he started wrestling. That was in 1975 from Jack Briscoe in Miami. And he really wound up sacrificing a lot. You know, Dave Meltzer wrote a nice piece on wrestlingobserver.com. I would recommend everybody check out because the love of Terry's life was not professional wrestling. It was his lovely wife, Vicky, Vicky, who unfortunately yeah. passed away a few years ago herself, but through this grueling schedule of being the NWA world champion. I mean, you were a traveling champion. It cost him his first love of yeah. Vicky. And, and after he was able to, and, and happy to drop that title to Harley race 14 months later in Toronto, he was able to win her back. And Dave Meltzer says that Terry would often tell him that's the biggest win of my career, getting Vicky back. Can you speak about their relationship? Oh, they were great. They were great. And, uh, Terry brought her, I, I don't know what year he started bringing her to almost everything he did. That doesn't mean she was at every ECW show. Um, but I must've seen her a hundred times Wow! over the years. Uh, there was a funny little moment last night. You know, you try to find uh, a smile in, in between the sorrow and so I saw a message from one of Terry's daughters asking if I would call. And as she, as I went to say, hi, this is Mick. She, she was in the process of saying, hi, Cactus. And then she stopped and apologized for calling me Cactus. But that's what I was known as. And I said, no, please don't ever stop calling me Cactus because that's, um, uh, that's who I was to him. And the couple, I said, the couple times your dad tried to call me Mick, it just didn't sound right. So I was always cactus to Terry, always cactus to Vicky, always cactus to his girls. And I'd like to keep that tradition alive. So, you know, she had that, uh, she had a really warm voice. Uh, I, I won't imitate it because it's not going to sound, uh, sound good. Uh, but it was an, an inimitable voice, the one of a kind 
And uh, there was always great warmth. And it would be, you know, I think Terry was one of the guys who not only brought in uh, like younger wrestlers and made them feel like family, but he had fans out at his ranch. And he was one of the most fan friendly. Yes. Uh, you know, I'm fan friendly to the extent that, you know, I'm really good in interactions, unless you catch me before 6 a.m. at an airport and then all bets are off. Uh, but Terry. He would stay, he would go down, he would have a drink or two with the fans. He would have people around him, like a circle of people. And he loved, you know, holding, uh, you know, he he loved those type of meetings. He really, he really loved his fans. We know he really loved his family too. And I was glad he was able to get back with Vicky. And of course, um, you know, they, they were together till the very end and, his wrestling career continued. He found out, you know what? There is life after being the touring NWA champion and every territory he went to, he set on fire. You mentioned his unbelievable, uh, run with, with, uh, dusty down in Florida. And we all recall the whole dusty sucks eggs. And I wanted to ask you about that crazy promo. There was a promo that went viral a few years ago when the WWE posted it on their on-demand service long before there was a WWE network, there was something called 24 seven. And when they posted it, a lot of people saw it for the first time where Terry dumped motor oil over his head. Uh, you can tell as he's in the middle of the promo, he hadn't thought that one all the way through because it started to burn his eyes. But my goodness, what a promo. Do you, what do you remember of those crazy promos? Like <laughs> I think he was running down bullet Barb Armstrong, wasn't he? Uh, these greasy Florida crackers or whatever he oh, was okay. like. Oh, okay. So he's running down dusty. Yes. Uh, so I believe he may have taken the motor oil promo and brought it to continental. Okay. Because, wow. Because, uh, you know, the, the Armstrong kids, of course, <laughs> loving the dad. they didn't take that lightly. No. You know? <laughs> it's amazing. So, yeah, he would try. He he tried a lot of different things, and most of them worked. And so he would enter. You know, he would find a way to interject genuine <laughs> emotion and create fear with a promo that looked on the outside like it was going to be goofy. You know, even the, uh, you know, his old ECW promo where he uh, talked to a horse's rear end as if it was Eddie Gilbert. And uh, and the horse farted on camera and he said, oh, Eddie, your face may have changed, but your breath is still the same. Oh, and that's just a, you know, it's just a great off the cuff line. And yes. not many guys in this business or any business can cut a promo to a, a horse's the horse's ass. Yeah. So by now, you know that Mick and I have spent a lot of time talking about some of these death matches and some of these bloody wars that he had, but you probably also know that that blood was intentional. You see, he wants to get cut accidentally, but unfortunately a lot of us do it. If you're using a cheap razor, you're getting those nicks, those cuts, that irritation. And I got to tell you, I got pretty annoyed with that whole subscription razor concept a few years ago. I found they just kept stacking up. What I enjoy most about Henson shaving is that it doesn't feel like a gimmick. It feels old school. Seriously, just the actual blade handle itself. Dude, it's metal. It's not some cheap piece of plastic that's gonna break on you or frustrate you. 
this is like, I mean, I'm not saying it's going to last a lifetime, but it feels substantial. It feels like something our grandparents would have used. And at the same time, man, you get a whole pack of these straight razors. Dude, this is old school, but here's what's cool about it. And here's why I believe that you got to meet Henson shaving. They're a family owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the international space station and the Mars Rover. And now they're bringing that same technology and engineering to your shaving experience. You see, I've learned that razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, well, the more nicks, the more cuts, the more scrapes. You see a bad shave isn't a blade problem. It's an extension problem. So by using aerospace grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend just 0.0013 inches, which is less than the thickness of a human hair. That means a secure and stable blade with a vibration free shave. It's also got a clog free design. You see this razor has built in channels to evacuate the hair and cream, which makes clogging virtually impossible. Seriously, Henson shaving wants the best razor, not the best razor business. Let me explain. There's no plastic. There's no subscriptions. There's no proprietary blades. There's no planned obsolescence. The Henson razor works with standard old school dual age blades, but it gives you that, that new age, that new school tech. I mean, dude, these folks have made stuff for space. You darn right. They can make stuff for your face. And once you own a Henson razor, it's only like three to five bucks a year to replace the blades. I'm a big believer in this. I was overwhelmed with the value. Seriously, you're going to get more blades than you can imagine. In my first shave, I have to admit, I was a little intimidated. I haven't worked with a straight razor like this before, but dude, it was easy and I felt like a badass when it was done. I'm going to tell you the design is incredible. The durability is awesome. It's super affordable. My buddy Cassio kid came over to watch the Royal rumble and I had told him about the razor before. And I said, Hey man, I got to show this to you. And I showed him the blade. I showed him the razor. It's, it's something you got to see. I recommend it. It's the most manly thing you can do today. It's time to say no to subscriptions and say yes to a razor that will last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com forward slash Foley to pick the razor for you and use code Foley and you'll get two years worth of blades free with your razor. Just make sure you add them to your cart. That's 100 free blades. When you head to H E N S O N S H A V I N G.com slash Foley and use the promo code Foley Hensonshaving.com forward slash Foley. Did you know that your temperature at night can have one of the greatest impacts on your sleep quality? If you wake up too hot or too cold, I highly recommend you check out miracle made bread sheets. They were inspired by NASA and miracle made uses silver infused fabrics that make temperature regulating bedding. So you can sleep at the perfect temperature all night long. Not only that, it's also cleaner. Did you know that traditional bed sheets can contain more bacteria than a toilet seat? That's what leads to some of that acne, those allergies, those stuffy noses, dude, it's just gross. But miracle made has a whole line of self-cleaning eco-friendly bedding your sheets, your pillowcases, your comforters, and they prevent 99% of the bacteria and they require three times less laundry. How do you beat that? I've got miracle made. My wife absolutely loves. We don't have to wash them as often. She feels like she has less stuffy noses. I feel like I've got less of those bumpies on my back and dude, I'm sleeping better. I'm cooler. I love it. 
See, they've got these self-cooling properties that bring you better sleep. We've always known that, I guess. I used to crank the fan up, kick my foot out from under the covers. But these fabrics, man, they're inspired by NASA. They're thermoregulating. They're going to keep you that perfect temperature all night long so you get better sleep every night. They're also self-cleaning, man. They're infused with silver. That's going to prevent up to 99.7% of the bacterial growth. It's going to leave you fresher and cleaner longer than all the other sheets. It's also very luxurious. It's high quality. Seriously, I prefer these sheets to the sheets that you would see in like a five-star hotel. These sheets are better in my opinion. By the way, stop sleeping on bacteria. It's freaking gross. It can clog your pores. It causes you breakouts and acne. Why not sleep clean with Miracle? Go right now to trymiracle.com slash Foley. That's trymiracle.com slash Foley to try these Miracle Made sheets today. And whether you're buying one for yourself or as a gift for your loved one, if you order today, you can save over 40%. And if you use our promo code Foley at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. By the way, Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash Foley and use the code Foley to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40%. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash Foley to treat yourself. And we thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring today's episode. Well, he, uh, he did a lot of things with horses over the years, including wrestle Jerry Lawler in an empty arena match. Yeah. Lawler of course came into that empty arena match on a horse. Uh, this is a bitter <laughs> feud in Memphis. They're at the Coliseum. It's Lance Russell and a cameraman. And you want to talk about innovation. This is 1981. And of course yeah. you and rock would borrow from this during a super bowl one year, but that match was so innovative and certainly the finish my eye, my eye. It's another oh, classic moment. And, you know, we talked about, you know, wrestling in the pandemic, how hard it must've been for those performers to, to wrestle and not have that response from the crowd, because the crowd is such an important piece of the yeah. way you build a match and tell a story. But in 1981, they did it masterfully. What can you tell us about your first impressions and maybe what Terry told you about that empty arena match? Well, there's a little funny story attached to it because I I saw that through Brian Hildebrand. He was you know, all things Memphis, and then he he had some access to other tapes, you know, from other territories. And it was through Brian that I saw Bill Watts's uh, Mid South and later uh, UWF. He loved the Memphis stuff, and I'd be like Brian, that the two cameras are completely different <laughs> colors, you know. Like they weren't quite balanced or something. It doesn't matter. It's Memphis. Uh, and the, I'd never seen studio wrestling like that. But you watch it and it's like, wow, the idea that these that these guys need to come up with new angles every single week because they are literally running the same four cities. They're, they're hitting Nashville on a Saturday night. They're hitting the Mid-South Coliseum on Monday, Louisville Gardens on Tuesday, the building in Evansville, some type of coliseum and then they would do their spot shows within 300 miles of uh, uh you know of nashville and so the the territories it was you did a lot of driving you did an awful lot of driving and you had to improvise and you had to innovate and you had to come up with new ways of reinventing yourself uh because it was on a weekly basis and you couldn't you know you, you couldn't take a match around the loop 
the way that you can these days because you had to constantly be changing it up. So one of the things they tried was the <laughs> empty arena match. And I was so taken with it as a Terry Funk fan because he's coming out and he's calling Lawler. <laughs> it just, Lawler, you bastard. <laughs> it's like he just, I, he, no one had ever said these things on, on TV before. And the, the whole thing with the my eye, my eye, it was really a spectacle. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> so when Rock and I decide to have the I, I, I talked WWE to do the empty arena match just so uh, I could pay tribute to this match. And I think I got WWE to send a, a cassette tape, a VHS, to, to Rock's house. And he gives me a call. This is like a week before we have our empty arena match, maybe just a few days before. And he goes, ah, okay, Nick, there's one problem with this and with this match. I go, what is it? He goes, it's the shits. <laughs> no, it's a classic. And Rock goes, no, it's not. It's the shits. <laughs> 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 I watched back and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> Outside of the name calling the eye thing, yeah, it wasn't, it was very good. Whereas the other stuff he did with Lawler, you know, was just that, that I mentioned in my article, just these left hands and that eye, and he turned around to the crowd, he'd have those hands out, you know, in the wobble walk, and he's looking and he's, yeah, keep continuing to yell out, pig, pig. It's like, I'm guaranteeing you. 75% of that arena thought what they were seeing was the real deal. And Lawler probably did too. As a guy who's been on the receiving end of Funk's left hands, they feel pretty darn real. So I, I got back to Terry and I was like, Terry, how, how in the world did this match become a classic? He goes, oh, you didn't watch that. It's one of the worst things I ever did. So Rock and I had to start over from uh, we we ended up doing okay with uh, what was one of the first cinematic matches I think in WWE history. I really enjoyed the empty arena match just because of the sale. My eye, my eye. I thought it was <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you and, felt like you had witnessed a crime, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah, we did. And and seeing Lawler come in on the court on the horse. <laughs> yes, you jackass. Time. So funny. <laughs> So funny. Go out of your way to watch that one. And man, his career doesn't stop there. And I can't help but think about what if, you know, when Vince goes national in 84 and he starts deciding, Hey, we're throwing the rule book out the windows. I'm going to start taking over these different territories. He's got Hulk Hogan. He's got the mainstream media. He's got NBC. I mean, he's wrestling Hulk Hogan on Saturday night's main event on NBC. This is when wrestling yeah. is as hot as it's ever been. But he wasn't there for long. I, I think that darn horse got sick. Why don't the you think? Why don't you think Terry stuck around? I mean, what do you think could have been possible had he stuck around? Uh, I think Terry was. I think he was. I had to get a nerve issue, uh, and that's why physically the Terry Funk you see it was that eighty five. Yep. Didn't look nearly as good as he did in eighty nine when he came back. Um, because I, I, I mean, I heard this a long time ago, uh, that he, he, he couldn't lift like he wanted to. Mm. I mean, you see Terry in paradise alley, uh, the, which is the first movie Sylvester Stallone ever directed. I think it's 1977 or 78. 
And Terry is a, he doesn't, he's a big boy, looks like a power lifter. Uh, and so he was used to throwing up some heavy weights and I believe he was injured and I don't think he was ever at his best when he was in WWE and he did have the match with, with Hogan and you know, he and Haas were a good team, but I think Terry shines on his own Yes, and, uh, you know, he may have done some things. He been between the, the run in Japan, I mean, in, uh, WWE and his return to WCW, but when he returned to WCW, uh, he uh, he just uh, he took you know he, when I say he took over the show, like it became his show. Um, and I know that people, and you can probably ask Rick, um, he didn't take kindly to some of the stuff that Terry was saying. That's right. The people around him warned Terry that Rick wasn't going to take kindly to it, but that's what Terry wanted. <laughs> you know, he, he, he wanted something that he, people at home were going to go, uh, I don't think he's going to like that. And if the goal, like my goal, was to be the one match where people go home and go, okay, I know most of that wrestling is whatever, but that match was real. And Terry had that ability to make everything seemed real. Like going back to the Lawler feud, he had such a history with Lawler that he did not want to do anything to diminish it, even on an independent show. So we did an independent show. This is going back, oh man, probably about eight or nine years. And so Terry at that time is 68. A lot of people at this independent show, uh, Northeast Champions Wrestling, are not the younger fans are not aware of Terry. Terry is going to be. Uh, I am going to be in Jerry Lawler's corner. Terry is going to be in Jerry's opponent's corner. Man Scout. Have you seen Man Scout on the independent? Scene? I have. Yes. Ah, it's a great independent gimmick. Right? Yes. He's, yes. He's a grown-up boy scout, and uh, aside from his promo about Man Scout. <laughs> Touting it to be one of the great talents of the 21st century. The thing I remember most is that when he starts making that way, his way to the ring, I say to the ring announcer, you better get out of the ring. He goes, what? I said, you better get out of the ring. He goes, but I'm the ring announcer. I said, you better get out of the ring. And I bailed out. The ring announcer didn't. And afterward, the ring announcer sitting backstage. He got a big ice pack and a goose bump for where Terry punched him. And he goes, I can't believe he punched me. And I said, what part of the words you'd better get out of the ring did you not understand? So he wanted people to believe. Another quick story is when uh, SoCal Val was the guest ring announcer. And I was the I was the referee between Terry and Abdullah the Butcher. Uh, same thing. He starts coming down. And I say to Val, I said, he might be kidding but I don't think he is. You'd better get out of the ring. And she heeded that warning. Uh, but he was just intent on bringing a sense of realism to everything he did. And I think, you know, I admired about him that he could be so incredibly serious one minute and make you laugh the next. Um, laugh and laugh, laugh and cut them off, as Paulie called it. And I don't know if anyone ever did it better than Terry. 
It's crazy to think that he wrestled as long as he did. I mean, we've talked about, uh, that fabulous documentary that you guys did that came out, uh, beyond the mat. And, and in that we see him planning his retirement match, which you were of course a big part of, uh, well, one of them in 1997 in Amarillo and yeah. it was WrestleFest, and what, what a fun show that was. But as you and I are recording, we're just a few days away from his now famous, even Eddie Murphy knows about it. Japanese retirement. It happened August 31st, 1983, the forever promo. I mean, yeah. y- you spent more time in Japan than probably almost anyone listening to this program. How big of a legend was Terry Funk in Japan? Yeah. Well, legend gets thrown on, gets thrown around a lot. Ed does the word iconic. But he was legendary and he was iconic in the culture. So after that huge farewell, you know, when he came back, it was never quite the same, but he was still idolized um, to, to the point where when we did our, you know, the, the finals of the King of the Deathmatch tournament, you know, he left by ambulance and there were hundreds of people surrounding the ambulance all saying his name they were saying incorrectly they were saying telly um that's that's not a knock it's neither just that's the way it was um so people they loved i mean they they loved him and they would spot him at the truck stops where we'd stop that was the probably the cheapest place to get a decent meal and be a, a little bit westernized um, you know, they'd stop him at the sushi bar. Anywhere he went, he was stopped and he was recognized. And he was always incredible with the fans. He always appreciated it. But the emotion in that, did you say it was 83, the farewell? That's right. It was just incredible. And uh, you put, you watch that one, uh, that, that one word said over and over. And even if people don't understand what they're seeing, even if you showed it to a non-wrestling fan, they're going to feel something because he feels something. And I I don't know for a fact that Eddie Murphy walked around random sets as much as he walked around Barry on the set they were working for. Because Barry was a, you know, he did a lot of uh, Eddie Murphy's writing during his Saturday Night Live run, won Emmy for... uh, the show where Eddie Murphy returned to Saturday Night Live just a few years ago, and he wrote The Nutty Professor. So it was one of those movies. Uh, so I don't want to say that Eddie is still to this day walking around going forever, but he was really taken by that. He was really taken by that. And, uh, and Eddie also recognized me from 100 yards behind because of my walk. And that was only because of the movie and his closeness with Barry. But I love the idea that Eddie Murphy was saying forever, forever. It's just, uh, it's, it's just a great, it's a great moment. It is a great moment. You know, you mentioned that fabulous feud with, um, Ric Flair in 1989. What a year that is not only for Ric Flair and Ricky steamboat, but also Terry Funk. And I think when most people think about Ric Flair in 89, they think about that fabulous trilogy with Ricky, the dragon steamboat people are yeah. still talking about it, but boy, as soon as it finished. And I mean, as soon as it finished and as yeah. you may recall in Nashville, since there had been some controversial finishes, there's three judges, Terry Funk happens well, the, to be the, one. The first, let me see if I get this right. Music city showdown is one of the best matches. Wait, wait. music city showdown is the first or the third. Well, that was the third shot town rumble. 
Tri-Town Rumble is one of the best matches of all time. They follow it up with a 60-minute draw at the Superdome. So they decide that it's two out of three. You can't have an inconclusive ending, so they're going to have three judges on hand, of which Terry is one of them. That's exactly right. And afterwards, of course, Terry. Now, remember, folks, Ric Flair had been this huge heel in this feud with Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. He was the philanderer. He was the playboy. He was the millionaire. Whereas Ricky, the dragon steamboat represented the everyman. He's the good dad. He's the good guy. He's the, the family man. He's bringing his kids to the ring for goodness sake. And his wife. Yeah. Meanwhile, Flair's out there with a mink coat and a gold Rolex and eight ladies and yada, yada. And then at the conclusion, as they're in the ring, congratulating the new champ, here comes Terry Funk to offer his congratulations and says, I'd like to go ahead and challenge you for that and new world so title. Meek and mild mannered in the way he asked, Red, yes. you know, I'd like to be that, uh, like to be that first challenger. <laughs> and then of course, Flair sort of dismisses it. Like, well, the NWA has a top 10. That's not the way it yep. works. You've been off in Hollywood making movies. I've been here being the world champion. Yeah, that's right. Now, before we talk about what happened afterwards, I want to remind everybody you know, they're obviously in the middle of a great year creatively for, for flair and steamboat. Maybe they're not selling a lot of tickets, but fans are just loving the content. And now we're going to transition to funk. But before we do the reference for you've been off making movies, it wasn't paradise alley. It was the other movie he's most known for roadhouse with Patrick Swayze, Yeah, which became just a really, really big deal. It made $61 million at the box office. It came out in may which is the same month that that pay-per-view was happening, uh, where he's now saying, I'd like to go ahead and challenge you. I mean, May of 89 is a big time in Terry Funk's life and it's going to get even bigger because when flair sort of blows him off, we see what a lot of people felt like was a major innovation at the time, right? An innovation, meaning a pile driver on a table. I mean, that just didn't happen in 1989. Certainly not on programming, not to say it never happened before. I know once upon a time, Harley and Hogan did a table spot and certainly they were doing stuff in Memphis, but this isn't a syndicated show. This isn't a local cable station. This is TBS. This is clash of the, this is a pay-per-view. This is Turner. They're going to replay this everywhere. And, uh, yeah, a pile driver on a table in 1989 and they're off to the races, but they turned the volume up even more and got in a little trouble, Mick, if you recall, and I think this was Terry's idea. He put a plastic bag over Ric Flair's head. Boy, those folks at Turner were none too happy. No, no, this is where they were really battling with, uh, how far they could take things. There was no blood at that time. So they would do things like I remember uh, Kevin Sullivan and his feud with Norman the Lunatic. Norman had a painting he'd made, like a childlike painting. Uh, Kevin came in, st- stomped a mud hole in him, broke the painting over his head, sm- and smeared it in. And lo and behold, Norman had red paint on his face. Like they were trying to find a way to be violent. Uh, and still adhere to WCW's practices and standards and the bag, you know, that was, yeah, there was a lot of heat on that for sure. Go out of your way to watch the great American bash 1989 as well. Uh, that's Ric Flair and Terry Funk in the main event for the world title. You get a very bloody Ric Flair cutting a promo. They are just really cooking with gas, but they blow it off when they do that incredible Clash of the Champions 9, New York Knockout, the I Quit match from Troy, New York. 
I think this is one of the greatest professional wrestling matches of all time. I would put it right up there with Brett and Austin at WrestleMania 13. It felt believable, Mick. Yeah. And, and I think in between July and November, the edict had come down, no blood. And I think it actually helped because uh, it didn't hurt. It didn't hurt because it was so physical. It was so good. 20, I think it 26, 27 minutes. And I was sitting on my couch in uh, Montgomery, Alabama. We had a rare off night uh, in Continental Championship Wrestling. And I just thought, this is this is the best match I've ever seen. And to this day, other people could point out other things. And they'd have their reasons why um, other matches were better. But that's one of the beautiful things about wrestling is nobody's wrong. Uh, and I don't think anyone would look at my choice of this as my favorite match of all time and say that, you know, I've lost touch. This is a match that holds up uh, in the same way that Flair had the instantaneous uh, babyface turn the moment that Terry um, went to work on him. And this is a lesson, you know, for anyone out there. I talk sometimes about the ability to shift gears and some of the biggest superstars, some of the greatest movesets have not shown me that ability to shift gears and watch Terry turn on Ric Flair, the way he goes from being humble and meek uh, to being the most dangerous man you could imagine. It's like instantaneous. And in the same way they did that turn, you know, after that match, uh, with Steamboat and Flair, uh, Funk's performance is so courageous in loss that he turns babyface, retires again as a babyface. Um, and it, it all made perfect sense. Man, oh man, do I love talking about this. We're getting a little older, and man, those next days after we hung out and maybe partied the night before... A little tough, right? I'm 42 years old. I can tell a difference. That was until I found Zbiotics. Let me explain. I used to enjoy a cocktail during the week, but I found that I was not productive at all the next day. Felt like butt. Well, the way around that is to get ahead of it with Zbiotics. Let me explain. Zbiotics is a pre-alcohol probiotic. That's the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle those rough mornings after drinking. And here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. And it's that byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your next day, right? We've all felt rough the next day and we thought, well, I'll just drink water, I'll feel better. No, that's not it. You see, Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break down that toxic byproduct. It breaks it down. You see, it's designed to work like a liver, but in your gut, where you need it most. Drink Zbiotics before drinking, drink responsibly, and enjoy the night with confidence. And I have to admit, I was skeptical when I first heard about this, and then I tried it with Eric Bischoff before I knew we were gonna be uh, <clears throat> enjoying ourselves. And buddy, I felt fine the next day. We were productive, we were up and at them early, we were making sales, we were closing those deals. I think Zbiotics for that. I'm telling you, it makes a difference every time I use it. I've never turned someone on to it where they didn't notice the difference. I think you will too. And let me mention this. Labor Day is right around the corner. Stock up on this. Share it with your family and friends. They're going to thank you for it. Especially if you're really hanging out on a Monday. You know what I'm talking about. Well, now we got to go to work on Tuesday. Dude, go be a hero on Tuesday and 
Have fun like you want to on Monday. Savor the moment. Let Zbiotics do the rest. Go to zbiotics.com slash Foley and get 15% off your first order when you use Foley at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Remember, head to zbiotics.com slash Foley and use the code Foley at checkout for 15% off. And we thank QZBiotics for sponsoring today's episode. You've heard Mick talk about it for years. AG1, Mick and I absolutely love AG1. We start each and every day with a simple scoop. That's it. That's all we need. One single scoop and a cup of water. And buddy, we're getting 75 different high quality ingredients. It's going to hook you up and give you all the key daily nutrients and it's going to go ahead and support everything you need, your energy, your focus, your strength, your clarity. This is just a, a no brainer to me. Think of it as like your foundational nutrition product. You know, listen, we all get busy and we wind up. Well, I didn't want to do this for lunch, but I don't feel like I have an option or well, I know I need to Dude, this is easy. Just one scoop every single day. You're making sure you're taking care of your most valuable asset. You, you cover all your bases. You're looking for better gut health. You want to boost in energy. You want to support that immune system. Maybe you hate taking pills or vitamins. Maybe you just want a supplement that tastes good. I drink mine every single morning. My wife does hers before she even does her coffee. It makes her feel unstoppable on her way to the gym. And I think it gives me more focus at work. I feel like I'm more productive and I don't have that crash in the afternoon. I feel like I'm more productive all day long. We started this back even before the pandemic started. My wife did, but when the pandemic started, man, she had me start doing it. We've done it every day since we are huge fans. I think you will be too. Even our daughters are into it now. Morgan's actually taking some down to Tuscaloosa with her. With every single serving, you're setting yourself up for success. I just can't recommend it enough. By the way, you don't have to take our word for this. Just go look up their reviews. These cats have thousands of five-star reviews. It's the real deal. If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go right now to drinkag1.com slash Foley. That's drinkag1.com slash Foley. Check it out. You'll be glad you did. And it's arguably the best physical condition that Terry was ever in. I mean, I don't know that he ever looked more like a fighting champion than right then. Yeah, he looked unbelievable. Like I said, you know, he had, he had a power lifter look for a few years, rough and tumble look when he was the uh, NWA champion. But as uh, you know, at that time he was 43, 42, 43, and he had the great abs and, and he was in a lot of pain. He had a, a, a I think a cracked uh, sacrum, I believe is the name of the bone in the lower back. Uh, I remember Shane Douglas telling me that on plane trips, he would either be like, he would get down on his knees in front of his chair so that he would have his hands, you know, his forearms crossed on the seat. And that's the way he relieved some of that pressure. And then he was, you know, dabbing the preparation H on his chest. <laughs> there are healing properties. Uh, Paul E was telling me how he would do it. He would like take the preparation. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're wrestling Rick every night and he's opening you up every night with those chops. So, you know, a loop those days where it might be 10, 10 days long. So you were taking chops 10 days in a row. So for you kids out there, just entering, uh, the business, uh, preparation H is the way to go. <laughs> 
you're being chopped hard. This whole time, I thought it was Neosporin. I learned something new. Yeah, uh, Neosporin. Oh, Neosporin for the um, forehead. Uh, well, no, I mean for the actual wound. But Preparation H is going to because uh, you want to sanitize. I don't think Preparation H is sanitizing it. It is anesthetizing it in a way. Well, I mean, it's numbing it. I think it, they had numbing. Pro- I've never used it for its proper use, so I don't know. But apparently, it is effective for uh, other things. Ch- yeah, for other things. Uh, so listen, we know that uh, there's a lot of crazy, memorable moments in ECW, but. There's so many with you in particular. I mean, the, the fire incident, the throwing yeah. of the chairs. I mean, are those the two that, that stand out the most, do you think? <laughs> yeah, probably. So I forgot about the, the chair. It's, it's raining chairs. You know, it, you know, we reached a, a, D, a double DQ when, um, the public enemy hit the ring. It was me and Terry in a singles match. Not a very long match. Definitely not one of our best. But, you know, sometimes people only remember the outcome. And the final thing they remember, Terry says, ask them for a chair. I said, give me a chair. And first came one, then came two, and then came more. Like two became four and four became eight. I would say uh, 200 chairs, maybe 300 to the point where the public enemy were literally no longer visible underneath <laughs> the cavalcade of chairs. I thought it was quite a spectacle until I got clipped in the head and then I bailed out. And so that was one of those great memorable nights. And, uh, uh, Bubba Ray was brother, bully Ray was giving me his take on the fire incident because, uh, Terry came into the dressing room about two minutes before I did. Because we still had like an angle to pull off after Terry had been burned. And uh, Bully said he was just throwing things. And I said, yeah, I said, yeah. I said, even when I got back there, I think I described it in my book. He was throwing chairs of, uh, throwing furniture <laughs> of giant nature. Like it would be lying. Like you didn't look like you could do it. That looks like something that like uh, Braun Strowman could throw. But he was just heaving tables and desks, and and he was looking for me. And in looking for me, Bully Ray, he was 402 pounds at the time, and he was a trainee. He hid behind a fan, and then he came out when it was just him and Terry. He said, are you okay, Mr. Funk? And Terry slapped him across the face. That's an example of transference. You know, he was angry at me. to yes. out of Bubba. And then when I came through that curtain, he browbeat me something awful. I, I mean, I was heartbroken. I had a 84 Chrysler Little Baron that I used to drive home from uh, Philadelphia to the place we rented on Long Island. And I started the ride saying to myself that I will never wrestle again. By the time I got home to Long Island, I'd resolved to never wrestle again in the United States. I was leaving Japan open for me. And this is before cell phones. So the next day, uh, my wife, Colette, takes me out to the eastern end of Long Island to just get my mind off it because I was heartbroken. This guy's my my idol. <laughs> he hates me. And when I come home, I see a message. I press that button, and I get this. I get, uh, Cactus, uh, this, this is Terry Funk, and uh, I just want to apologize. Uh, I was a damn fool last night, but I'll tell you what. 
we sure gave them something to remember. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> my gosh. Uh, yeah. And I just felt so, uh, I just felt so good. You know, he had a way of making you feel like the, the most important person in the world. Well, ECW did their best to make him feel like the most important person in the world back then, you know, long before they were on national TV, Paul Heyman had everybody drinking the Kool-Aid that the dance, the next level, the major leagues <laughs> of professional wrestling were pay-per-view right. who better to be featured in the main event and, and walk away as the new newly crowned ECW world champion than the hardcore legend himself, Terry Funk. I was so glad they were finally on ECW and I was glad that Terry got what felt like one last world title run, uh, a really cool moment for ECW. And of course, before we got there, you guys still had some more fun. We did it in long form, but the IWA King of the death match. I mean, you two <laughs> will always be forever linked with that match. And in the end, it, you know, what else did he need to do in his career? He was Terry freaking funk. But boy, that really puts you on the map in a big way, did it not? Oh, yeah. He passed the torch to me. And, you know, we didn't talk about the match at all. That's why if you watch the match, you know, I, I'm glad that I think at one point it was the most widely watched uh, bootleg um, match or maybe just most widely watched match on VHS of all time. It's probably still up there, you know. People gather around, and it uh, it made quite an impact. The match itself, because there was no design to it, we'd already been through two matches each, and uh, you know, it was it started off as the hottest day of the summer, at least that I could recall. So hot, in fact, that in the opening matches, the wrestlers couldn't go down to the mat because they had a new like uh, a new canvas that was not a canvas. They had sponsors, and you know how it's got that plasticky feel sometimes. Yep. Uh, a certain, uh, I see use canvas as a generic term and the opening wrestlers couldn't go down to the mat because it was too hot. And now you have the spectacle of guys about to enter what could be life and death certain situations, selling their merchandise before they go to the, before they go to the ring, you know, and I think I talked in the long form about how my music is actually playing to wrestle Terry Gordy and I'm still... <laughs> selling gimmicks and Asano comes over cactus or now I go hold on I got a couple more things to sell and then I stuff all the yen in my cowboy boot and off we go to have the match so when Terry and I are getting ready for a match he just came into the he came into my dressing room and he looked at me and he goes you know I wouldn't do this for many people and he wasn't talking about putting people over in general, but what he was about to do for me in Japan was something he was giving up. He was giving, he was making me over there so that if I, if the WWE contract had not come along the offer, um, man, I would have been in a pretty good position not to make a lot of money because the way they were, they just incrementally had offered me a $500 a week raise. So you can look back and wait $3,500 a week when it's actually a 10-day trip with travel. You do that 12 times, you know, you're not, you're not getting rich. You know, you're 30, you're, you're making 42,000 a year. Yeah. Yeah. And you are getting destroyed because of it. Um, but at that time I really thought, Hey, I can do this. 
I can work ECW. I think in the past episode, a past episode, we talked about my feeling that I could go and maybe apply to WCW as like essentially like you know a glorified enhancement talent. And Paul was the one who told me that Paulie that I had far more to offer than I thought I did. And he was the first one to put it in my head that I could be a WWE guy because I didn't think so. But back to the subject of Terry. Yeah, him giving me that, he really made me. So I believe to this day there are plenty of people in Japan who refer to me as the king of the deathmatch. We, uh, we know that the next time you got to uh, do something, quote-unquote, ECW-related with him once you go to the WWF, is during Hardcore Homecoming, 2005, of course, everyone talks about one night stand that happened at the Hammerstein Ballroom on a Sunday, but a couple of days before that on Friday, Jeremy Borash and Shane Douglas got together. <laughs> they rented the old ECW arena. They did the night. The line was crossed sort of part two. It was going to be Terry Funk and Sabu and Shane Douglas in the main event. And you were the surprise special guest referee. And as I understand it, you guys had to keep that a secret because you were still doing stuff with WWE. What do you remember about that? Yeah, I came in undercover. I was thinking about this a couple days ago. I must have had a pretty high stature in the company because I did not ask Mr. McMahon for permission. I told him I was doing it. I said, there's something I feel strongly about. I said, Shane Douglas helped me a lot in my career, and uh, I'm going to be there. Um, so I didn't pose it as a question, and uh, I don't think he was happy about it. But I think he respected it. And so I was there and I was brought in under cover of darkness and I made the calculation that when I pulled out Mr. Sacco, those fans were going to boo. And that's why I knew it was a two-step process. It was bring out Mr. Sacco, get the boo, and then wrap barbed wire around him, which made him a hardcore sock. And it was a, yeah, it was a, it was a fun show to be a part of. And it made me, you know, I, I felt like I gave back, especially to Shane, who had been such a good friend and so instrumental in my career. Uh, so I was able to help. That show would have been a success anyway, because I, it's not like I was advertised and put any butts in seats, but it was certainly a nice, uh, a nice surprise for, for the, uh, you know, for the, the, ECW fans. I was there front row. Loved it. Was surprised you were there. It was, uh, it was a really cool moment. And most of all, it was cool just to see you guys back in the ECW arena again. And we've touched on the fact that you would do uh, one night stand the second go around and, uh, and, and funk would be involved there. And who could forget all the, the craziness you did with chainsaw Charlie that we've covered in long form here on the program. Um, Sorry, I'm having a little chair trouble. That's okay. Here. Were you surprised a handful of years ago? I mean, I think it was even as late as 2017. Terry Funk wrestled Jerry Lawler again. Uh, and, and it's almost become a joke, you know, in wrestling that nobody ever really retires. And maybe Terry was the best example of that. And there's certainly a few others that are maybe trying to play catch up, but he just had it in his blood, man. He just couldn't let it go. Right. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I I played a part in a match that uh, Terry had during WrestleMania weekend. This is pre-pandemic, so I'm thinking 2016, 2017. I wish I remembered clearer, but it was a show that Gabe Sapolsky was doing, and he got in touch with me and 
wanted to know if I might be able to be part of the main event in some way, maybe come out as a second referee. And uh, so I had asked WWE permission because it was the night of their Hall of Fame. And uh, they understood it was a big deal for me. Because uh, I, I think maybe I was the commissioner. I, I, maybe I'd just been fired. I can't remember what the exact scenario was. But I did ask permission, and they were happy to give it to me. And it was a really good moment. We shared the ring. Yeah, this is during one of those years where I was down in my weight quite a bit. It was probably around 260. Uh, Sabu was there. Uh, Terry. Uh, we'll have to do a little research and find out what the actual match was. But it was really nice. It was a really good moment. Terry didn't know I was going to be there. He got emotional. And it was a, it was, it was a fun night. It was, uh, quite a career that you guys shared together and what a life he lived. He leaves behind, um, a wonderful family. Of course, Vicky preceded him in death. So if nothing else, he's finally back with the first love of his life. And that's the only solace we can take in all of this, I suppose. But when you think about Terry Funk and what his legacy will be in pro wrestling, I mean, you had. Of course, his father passed away in the ring, and then he and his brother were the first pairs of brothers to win the NWA championship. And then the wonderful retirement ceremony and, and such he had over in Japan, and then wrestling Hogan on Saturday night's main event, and the fabulous feud in 89 and Roadhouse, and and then the whole second act of his life, man, with ECW yeah. and the King of the Death match and the New Age Outlaws and the Attitude Era. What do you think his legacy will truly be? Oh, well, I he was the greatest wrestler of all time. Yeah. And uh I I you know, like like I say, nobody's wrong, but if a fan doesn't have him in their top twenty, they need to go back and do their homework. Yeah. <laughs> um and if someone uh from that era uh, who did work with him doesn't have him in the top 10. I, I'm just going to say, well, I did say you're nobody's wrong, but they are wrong. Right. Like, uh, there's uh, the Mount Rushmore is always really interesting. Uh, but, uh, to me, he was, he was the best who's ever done it for reasons we talked about. And, uh, it, but he will be known as someone who gave more of himself to wrestling than anybody I've ever seen. Um, it was, it was you Conrad who sent me the photo from his the photos from his birthday party that I talked about. And I was in the middle of, uh, I had taken an early flight to Pittsburgh for a signing, uh, because I wanted to do something in Pittsburgh right around the time of hell in a cell. So I did it on a Sunday, three days before the cell. And, uh, so I got, had no sleep that night. The night before, as I rarely sleep when I have a 6 a.m. flight. So I'm tired anyway. And then my brother tells me that my mom is not reacting well to having contractors at her house. And so I thought, oh man, I don't want to make her life any more difficult. So I make the drive from Pittsburgh on no sleep to New York, which is about an eight hour drive. And then I'm going to take my mom with no rest another six and a half hours up to the mountains of New Hampshire. So I was really tired. I saw something come through from you. I pulled over to get gas and, uh, I took a quick look at the photo and I did, as soon as I got the gas, I pulled over in a spot and I just cried because it was so devastating to me. 
so I think when you examine Terry's legacy, you also have to keep and take into consideration that he probably did too much in trying to give as much as he possibly could. He probably gave too much. You know, it, um, there's a price to pay, and he paid it willingly. But man, it was it was the price was steep. I want to end on a lighter note as we talk about Terry, yeah. and then I want to spend a few minutes talking about Bray. But before we do, uh, Bruce Pritchard tells a fabulous story that I understand almost became a bit of a crutch for Terry. It was a go-to funny ha-ha that maybe was a little off color. And as I understand it, uh, as they're starting shotgun Saturday night, Bruce Pritchard <laughs> has this idea. Hey, we're going to try to make this edgier. And, and I, I think, uh, you know, Paul Heyman was helping scout locations. We're going to do it in bars and things like that. It'll be syndicated and late at night. And we're going to be a little more risque, but right. here's the things you can't do. Terry, Terry <laughs> understands, grabs the live mic, starts talking trash about another wrestler and says something like your mother's a whore. <laughs> and as I read different wrestlers, books and bios and things like that. This was something he would do to get heat or get a laugh or get a chuckle or a combination. Uh, what can you tell us about that funny Terry Funk ism? Well, you know, I, I think part of the reason the Armstrongs were so upset was that I believe that he had used that type of verbiage against the Armstrong family and then later used it on me in both ECW and WWE where I was a willing participant. And the, you know, I'm going to save a couple stories because when I do the show, I'm going to do a show at stand up live in Huntsville, uh, in December. And I'm, I'm going to make, uh, the Terry Funk stories bring me happiness. And I'm glad we haven't touched on everything that, uh, you know, all this funk stories, because I want to save a few of them and they're different when you perform them live. Right. And you can attest. It's a good, uh, yes. it's, a, it's a good show and this one will be fun. And if stories are actually actively making me happy the way that doing dusty stories did on my last tour, uh, that, that becomes infectious. Um, but I'm laughing about the, you know, the, the, your mother's a whore because even in W. WWE. Remember, this is a time when they're reforming ECW. Yes, and uh, and Terry and I are going doing going to verbal war in Lubbock, Texas, and he's you know Cactus Jack, your <laughs> your wife is a whore, your mother is a whore, your children are both bastards, and then not a peep out of me. And then he goes and WWE sucks, and then boom, now it's on. Like you can insult my mother, my children, my wife, but doggone it, don't you dare! <laughs> so, so yeah, and so we did something similar in uh, ECW that's more drawn out, and it's something I want to talk about live. So I'm not going to share it with you guys here, but. He would, uh, you know, a lot of times Terry didn't just cross the line. Like, he leapt over it. <laughs> and you would know when a line was crossed because Terry was on the other side. Uh, and they realized, okay, that we can't really put a live mic in this guy's hand on a live show. Uh, but he, he made it memorable for sure. 
Of course, you can keep up with where Mick is going to be live and pick up tickets for all of his shows over at realmickfoley.com. I'll be at his show in December. You should be too. It's a Terry Funk tribute show at Stand Up Live here in Huntsville, Alabama. And we're actually going to have the ECW world title uh, that Terry won, his actual world title, the ring used royal title that Terry held that ran in a lot of headlines this past week. Uh, it'll be there as a part of mixed fundraising efforts and oh, tribute wow. shows. So we'll make sure that we celebrate that, but pick up your tickets now at real Well, by now, you know, this episode is sponsored by blue chew. Let's talk about sex. Shall we remember the days when you're always ready to go? Well, now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed. Listen up. It's bluechew.com. Bluechew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis and Levitra, but in chewable tablets and at a fraction of the cost. Take these anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. And the process is simple, y'all. You just sign up at bluechew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. And here's the best part man, it's all done online. That means no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Bluetooth tablets are made in the USA, prepared and shipped directly to your door, all in a discreet package. Bluetooth wants to help you have better sex. So discover your options at bluetooth.com. Chew it and do it. Dude love would be proud. Seriously, this is a home run. They're a day one sponsor for us here on the program. And you know why it really works. If you haven't tried it already, what are you waiting for? How about this? we got a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free when you use our promo code Foley at checkout. Just pay the $5 shipping. That's BlueChew.com. The promo code is Foley to receive your first month free. Visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring the day's podcast. Uh, but man, as if that wasn't enough, boy, it was a double doozy this week. We got not one piece of tragic news as wrestling fans and our little internet wrestling community. But another piece, and unfortunately, this is a fellow who didn't get to live his life to the fullest like Terry Funk did. His life was cut way, way too short. Sadly, we lost the performer known as Bray Wyatt, the real life Wyndham Rotunda at just 36 years old. He leaves behind a, uh, a lovely uh, bride to be, as I understand it, they were hoping to get married in maybe December and man, I think four young children behind. And so much life in front of him. There's lots of rumor and innuendo surrounding, uh, his health problems. And and we're not here to speculate on that. That'll come out when it comes out. But what will always leave a mark on us is his impact on WWE and his presentation. And I can't help, but think that he was getting a little of his influence from your old mankind persona. And, and he was this cult like leader that felt like he was, you know, right out of, uh, Cape fear. I mean, this was a, a persona and a character that continued to evolve. He continued to reinvent himself much like Terry Funk. I mean, the character evolved and sadly just 36 years old, man. What can you tell us about Bray? Well, I thought he was a genius. I really did. Um, I thought so highly of him. Uh, I just started, I mean, I've just started watching wrestling in earnest again the last month or so. And uh, we can talk about that next, uh, you know, in the next podcast. But uh, by and large, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with the way, you know, the product's looking. I have to start looking into AEW some more. Um, 
But when my children were all watching, and I, I, and I would watch too, I would watch it kind of in the background, and I would multitask, and I would do different things sitting on the couch, so I'm still part of the family atmosphere for three hours every Monday night, but I would largely be working on other things, and it was really Bray Wyatt that would make me put all my stuff down, and I would just sit and stare at that screen, and I was transfixed. And I think that's the way so many people were when they watched him. He was uh, just I like yeah, you know he may have he may have borrowed from me, but he was borrowed from me. He's borrowed from Terry, but he makes it his own. Yes, that's that's the key. Uh, before the Bray Wyatt character uh, debuted on WWE, I do not think Florida. I don't I don't think developmental had yet gone to Orlando. I'm not sure on that. They were in Orlando, but, but it wasn't. Uh, it was on Hulu, so it oh, wasn't it was on Hulu. Okay. Yeah. So, so it was not being seen by nearly as big right. an audience. Right. And so when he was at TV, he told me he'd been working on something and that he was doing these promos in a rocking chair. And he alluded to the promo I cut on Randy Orton in a rocking chair. I only did it once. And it's like, it's there for the taking. That's the thing. It's like the stuff I do is it's there to be borrowed from. So it made me so proud to see him in that rocking chair and to think that I may have, you know, influenced that in some way. Uh, and every once in a while, after a big match, he'd, he'd pull me aside. He goes, you know, I, he would point out the match where he got an idea from. And I think the biggest thing for me uh, in Bray's career was Paul Heyman asking me, calling me up, Cactus, We'd like to give Bray Wyatt the mandible claw. And I said, oh, I love it. And he goes, and we'd like you to take it on TV. I said, I love, love that even more. And so if there's a way to get the move over to hurry, it's to do it on the guy who's who's known for it. Yes. So I, uh, I play, aside from everything he did in the ring, he was really a great presence backstage he was a nice guy i don't know how many people know this but he smelled great he really <laughs> did and you know i'm i'm just a toms of maine deodorant guy you know uh so uh, but i it wasn't an overpowering cologne but he smelled great and he had this voluminous like a shine in his beard i i asked him if he used any products because if he did i why i had the big beard you know for 10 years um and he just had this gleam in his eye and i thought you know it's a good thing he's got the 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 the, the fiend that he came back to because i thought he would suffer the same fate that i had which is not a bad fate it just changes things for you in that people will eventually come to the conclusion about him that they did about me. He's got nice eyes. He's got kind eyes. And, uh, you know, he was such a great promo that he could cover that up for the longest time. But I think the world would have realized sooner or later that this was a really a nice man. Uh, but I thought he was a genius. I go back to when I, I wrestled Mike, uh, Mike Rotunda's dad in 1990. That was the biggest angle I'd had up until that day when I turned up until uh, that time 
when I turned on Mike Rotundo after a, after a, uh, a tag team match and, uh, and it turned in babyface. Uh, and then we went around the loop. We probably wrestled 30, 40 times. So I, you know, I knew his dad well, and I was so happy when I heard that his son was getting into wrestling. And it was like, if you thought he was going to come out as, you know, a member of the varsity club and following his dad's footsteps to a T, like he took a different path. And it was, it was a beautiful, uh, untraveled path. And, um, he did it, uh, man. He did it so well. He did it so well. And he was constantly evolving. Um, I know there were some people who thought that he wasn't booked well, but I thought he got time on TV and that no loss was going to really hurt him, with the exception of the quick loss to Goldberg. I don't think that's what anyone wanted to see. Um, but he was not someone who was going to be defined by a loss. He was going to come back. He was going to find ways to reinvent himself. I'm, I'm just so sorry for his family, 36 years old. I had just come off the plane, Conrad, and I'd worked on that story about Terry for about an hour in the airport and another couple hours in the, uh, in the, uh, on the flight itself. And when I came off, you know, the first, the first person I talked to is Terry Funk's daughter. Um, and we, that's where we talked about the cactus mix subject. And then I got a text saying that, uh, Bray Wyatt had passed away. And I was just, uh, man, spend the worst couple of days. I'm glad I'm here on here talking about it. So I'm not thinking about it. I'm going to hustle off to a comic con here in just a few minutes, but I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. I know that, um, the people who did spend the time with him, um, the guys who were in Florida Championship Wrestling with him and the later uh, NXT, they rave about him as a human being. And uh, uh, he was good to people. And that's as important or more important to me than what you do in the ring is what you do backstage and how you treat people especially when you've made it and he was he was a really good man he was a great man loved by all you've called him before a true visionary and a creative genius and uh anyone and everyone that worked with him either in front of the camera or behind the scenes in wwe would tell you the same thing and if there's any connective tissue between bray wyatt and terry funk it goes beyond just the fact that they were wrestlers it goes just beyond the fact that they were legacy performers. I don't think it gets talked about enough, but his brother's Bo Dallas, of course, his father was IRS, uh, in the WWF. And of course his grandfather was black Jack Mulligan, uh, yeah. just an, a true icon. And of course his uncle was Barry Windham. I mean, this is a true great wrestling family, just like the funks, but beyond that, man, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone who had anything bad to say about either one of these individuals, whether it's Terry Funk or Bray Wyatt, it feels like within the industry amongst their peers, they weren't universally well-liked they were universally loved Yeah, and, uh, just gone way, way too soon. You know, it sounds cliche. Our thoughts and prayers go to the Bray Wyatt family and his entire family, as well as the young family he leaves behind and Mick, I don't know if you've seen this, but WWE has decided they're donating 100% every nickel of the merch that sells for Bray Wyatt directly to Bray's family. 
Oh, so that's 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 great. Um, you know, uh, like we've seen the salaries have escalated so much in the last uh, few years. But Bray was out for I don't think he came in with a big salary. Uh, he was out uh, for a lengthy period of time. I don't know what. The, and even with a great salary. You need three or four of those big years before you start looking at retirement type money, and uh, I really, I'm really happy to hear that because you're talking about four children. Uh, like you said, JoJo uh, was his fiance, and that's a, it's a great thing that they're doing. I really, uh, I really appreciate hearing that. It is a great thing they're doing. I encourage everybody pick up some merch uh, from WWE. All of that money. Uh, goers directly to Bray's family. Normally it's a royalty. As I understand it, they get a percentage of that. Uh, I think now they've altered that and it all goes there. So, uh, he leaves behind a young family who's going to need a lot of help. And, um, I hope the WWE pays him tribute. Of course, we're recording, uh, on, on Friday afternoon. I think SmackDown tonight should be a tribute episode for him. Uh, and what can we say, man? It's been a, uh, as we said at the top of the show, this week sucked, but we hope that us reliving some of the fun memories, uh, about Terry Funk and, and trying to pay our great respects to Bray Wyatt brought us a, a, a bright spot to your day. But I want to mention there is another bright spot around the corner. I can't believe this is real, but you're celebrating a big milestone on cameo. And as I understand it, uh, you're doing something pretty cool. You're going to be offering a big discount. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I passed five thousand uh, five star reviews, uh, and I'm I'm really proud of that. It's uh, you know we, we we used to do them uh, on air, um, but so so you, you, our viewers know how much I enjoy doing them. So five thousand is it's more than double any other wrestler or athlete, uh, and to celebrate. Uh, I just came up with the uh, story of fives. It's for 5,000 five-star reviews. It is 50% off for five days beginning September 5th. And uh, you have to use the, the website, not the app. And they take a ton of money anyway. It doesn't work on the app. So you go to uh, cameo.com slash Mick Foley. And when you are leaving, when you're about to pay, you enter discount code Foley, capital F, O-L-E-Y, 555. And uh, 50% off for five days starting September 5th when you use discount code Foley, capital F, O-L-E-Y, 555. That's cameo.com forward slash Mick Foley. Don't forget to use that promo code Foley capital F five, five, five. Of course, uh, you can also check us out on YouTube Foley on youtube.com. Like, got lots of great shirts and whatnot available for you over at Foley is But if you want to see Mick in person, by all means, go out of your way to catch him by checking out his schedule at real uh, Mick, I understand you're at a comic con right now. Folks yeah. will be listening to this. Yeah. So where can they catch you on Saturday? Uh, I am going to be in Davenport, Iowa, home of, uh, Seth Rollins and Becky Lynch, but they're on the road. So I won't see them on that planet funk. The one man show I'm doing three, one man shows, uh, actually a fourth one. Uh, I've only done, I think five all, uh, uh, this will be five all year. 
it just happened. Uh, well, I wanted to do the Terry Funk show um, uh, in Huntsville. Uh, I re- really wanted my wife to see a show. So we're doing a show in Nashville that the Foley's will be attending. Uh, that's on December 21st. I'm doing one of the shows. I think it's September 27th in Spokane, Washington, and then one November 10th in Horseheads, New York. So these are kind of one-offs, and I, I won't go on a big tour until 2025. But you can catch me if you go to the realmcfoley.com. I'm in Davenport, Iowa this weekend. I'm in uh, Austin, Texas. Next weekend, I'll, I'll miss Friday because I'm going to Terry's service. Um, and then I'll be at uh, TerrorCon in Marlboro, Massachusetts in the middle of September. Check it out, realmcfoley.com, and we'll see you sooner rather than later right here on Foley is Pod.